Ben mentioned, I'm Kevin Reichley, I'm one of the elders here at Wayside, and uh, this morning I get the privilege of preaching through uh, the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 24 this week, and we're going to see Paul in front of the governor, Felix. Ben talked a little bit about this last week, and uh, it's got a lot of really good applicability to our life, so if you would, just grab your Bible or your Bible app and pop open. We're going to be in the whole chapter today, so we're going to be reading a lot of scripture, Uh, But I think it's going to be really, really good. And I I really just want to say thank you first and foremost. I was supposed to preach this last Sunday, and uh, I was uh, under the weather. And so Ben graciously stepped up to to write a sermon on short notice and preach that. And then also, Elias, uh, thank you for playing this week, too. I was supposed to be playing worship today, but instead I'm preaching, which is awesome. So thank you guys for stepping in for me last week. And um, Ben stepped in. He did talk about the governor Festus last week and Paul's appeal to be, to be tried in Rome by Caesar. And today we're actually just going to rewind the tape two years and we're going to see Paul in front of the governor Felix. And to set the scene, uh, less than this, so less than two weeks earlier from what we're talking about today, Paul had been arrested in Jerusalem in the temple by a group of Jews from Asia. Okay, so he tells the story his story, basically a story on the road to Damascus to these people, and uh, they really just start rising up against him. They're about to interrogate Paul by flogging him, but they find out he's a Roman citizen, and they kind of pull back. And so they bring Paul before the council to understand, why, why are the Jews accusing you, Paul? And so um, basically he understands, Paul picks up on this pretty quick, there's a group of Pharisees and Sadducees in the crowd. And he knows that by raising the issue of the hope of the resurrection, that he's going to cause some dissension. And that's exactly what happens. These two groups of Pharisees and Sadducees, they start fighting with each other, quarreling to the point where they have to get Paul out of there. They think he's going to get killed in this melee. Then if, I think you guys remember this, but there was a plot to kill Jew. Uh, and so they, uh, the son of Paul's sister finds out about this. He gets the tribune's help, and they, they, they get Paul out of harm's way, and they bring him before Felix. And that's where we are today in, in Caesarea, and uh, that's where we pick up the story. And so Ben talked a little bit about this last week, but uh, Tuesday was Election Day. Tuesday was Election Day. I hope you guys got a chance to go out and vote. Um, but don't you guys just love election season? You guys love election season? It's like really these wholesome campaigns, right? These people just literally dragging their opponent through the mud and uh, basically saying, hey, you're an idiot if you vote for these guys. I think we got a picture of one campaign that I found. Like, isn't that just make you feel good? Like, just to read <laughs> campaign ads like this? Gives you the warm and fuzzies inside. And it's, it, it really is unfortunate, isn't it, that politicians feel that the way they can kind of quote-unquote get ahead is really by bashing, bashing their opponent, right? And so I think it would be super, super... Uh, refreshing to have a candidate that was getting just attacked and dragged through the mud, just kind of not take the high road and say, hey, I'm going to stand on my merits. I'm going to talk about what's good about me. I'm not going to go into the, to the, to the dregs with like my opponent is. And, but we see this all the time, trying to gain our approval by attacking the character of their opponents. And so we see this election after election. It happens over and over, and it's really unfortunate. And we're going to see that in our passage Today, we're going to see multiple opponents of Paul taking shots at his, attacking his character, trying to get him taken out. And in their minds, uh, Paul was a threat to them. Paul was a threat to their status, their ability uh, to, quote, unquote, get ahead, right? So we see them start to grovel the governor Felix. We see them start to sling mud, start to attack the character of Paul. 
We see them uh, seeking the approval of man to try to get ahead and to try to get what they want, which is Paul to get out of the picture. Okay, so the truth is, the truth is today for us friends that we do this more often than we think we do. We seek the approval of man above the approval of God in many different areas of our life. And some are more obvious than others, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But what we do get to see is a beautiful picture of how Paul responds to these attacks, to these accusations. And we clearly see that Paul is living a life that is pleasing to only God, to only God. It kind of has an audience of one, an audience of God. And that's what we want to do as believers, too. Our big idea this morning is that pleasing man is filled with doubt and fear, but pleasing God is filled with peace and boldness. So pleasing man is filled with doubt and fear. Pleasing God is filled with peace and boldness. And so we should be striving to live these lives that please God and not man. So we're going to jump into our passage. First, we see that pleasing man is filled with doubt. And specifically, if you think about this, pleasing man is filled with doubt. And a lot of times this manifests in lying and lying. So let's look at the passage. It starts out in verse one. It says this. Now, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges against Paul to the governor. And Paul had been summoned. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began accusing him, saying to the governor, Since we have attained great peace, pay attention to this part, since we have attained great peace through you, and since reforms are being carried out for this nation by your foresight, We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that that I may not weary you further, I beg you to grant us a brief hearing by your kindness. Okay, so let's see what's happening here. The high priest Ananias has come down with some elders, and they brought an attorney with them to bring their case against Paul. But this is a really interesting opening remark by the lawyer. He basically starts to butter up Felix, right? And he's saying he's brought great peace and reforms to their nation. He calls him excellent. He thanks him. He's, and he's laying it on really, really thick here, if you guys haven't picked up on that. And the ironic part is that the lawyer and basically everyone else here knows that this is completely false. This is completely false. Ben mentioned this last week. He talked a little bit about this. But Antonius Felix began life as a slave. So the governor Felix began life as a slave. First Roman governor to ascend from, being to, from starting life as a slave. And I guess you guys have probably guessed this, but how did, how did he rise to the office of governor? I think he did it by taking the high road and, and kind of beating his merits and, and talking about himself in a, in a positive light. No, of course not. Politicking, backstabbing. Uh, he was an immoral and brutal man, Felix was. He didn't bring peace or prosperity to Judea. He put down several insurrections with just brutal violence. He ordered the massacre of thousands of Jews, while confiscating their possessions for wealthy Romans. Felix had a high priest assassinated. Felix seduced his wife, Drusilla, who we're going to see later in the, in the passage today, um, away from her husband. And, and Drusilla is her third, his third wife. So, so you guys get the point here. This is, this is not a good man. Governor Felix, this is not a good man. Yet here is Tertullus, the hired gun attorney, really sucking up to him, buttering up uh, him in his, opening, in his opening remarks here. So you have to imagine that there was a healthy amount of doubt that their argument was going to be worth anything if they have to really start to butter this guy up with their opening statement, right? So as we continue in our passage, we start in verse 5. It says this, For we have met, found this man a public menace, and one who stirs up dissensions among the, all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, so indeed we arrested him. 
By interrogating him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we are accusing him. The Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So here, here's really where we get into that character defamation. So he, he buttered up the governor in his opening statement. Now he goes into full-on attack mode. And in verse 5, Tertullus calls Paul a public menace who stirs up dissension among the Jews throughout all of the world. Other translations here, instead of menace, say a plague. Uh, so in other words... He's calling Paul politically dangerous, a troublemaker, a revolutionary against Rome. And he goes on to say he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Now, if you guys think about the word ringleader, that's really never used in kind of a, a positive light either, right? It's, it's usually the head of a group that's, that's stirring up some trouble. And, uh, and, and, and leading the sect of the Nazarenes, this is a deliberate choice of words here. A sect is often a derogatory term as well for a group that's kind of broken off from the established church, and they're typically regarded as heretical. And, le- and, and finally, Nazarenes weren't looked upon favor- favorably either. So you may remember in verse, uh, this verse in John 1, uh, Jesus is calling Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples. And, and Philip tells Nathaniel, he says, hey, we found the, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Come, come, and, come and see it. And, and immediately Nathaniel replies, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You remember, remember hearing that? And so all of these things, right, a sect, a ringleader of the Nazarenes, a plague, uh, a public menace. So he's taking shots at Paul here, which, again, it points to doubts that he has that, that, that they had a credible case against Paul, right? They buttered up the governor. Now they're taking shots, taking shots at Paul. And then he, he accuses Paul of desecrating the temple, pointing to a false claim that he brought a, uh, a Gentile Trophimus from uh, the Ephesian into the temple with him. That was a false claim. And Tertullus says, by questioning Paul, of course, they would be able to understand uh, that they, why they were accusing him of these things. And then the jo- Jews kind of join in, and they hem and haw, and they, they, get behind, they get behind Tertullus as well. So right off the bat, we see Tertullus is seeking to, to please and gain the approval of man, in this case, Felix. Uh, but this argument is filled with doubt as he resorts to, to flattery, name-calling, and lying. Now, friends, at some point, I was thinking about an illustration for this. At some point in our life, uh, we've probably fibbed a little bit in a job interview. <laughs> I can probably say that from personal experience. Um, or we have interviewed somebody that was clearly exaggerating their merits or their abilities or the skills that they have, and, and, and that could be taking credit for, for work that somebody else did. Uh, it could be claiming to have a skill set that you, that you don't have, or maybe it's conveniently leaving out uh, something, some big mistake that you made on a job one time, right? Just conveniently leaving that to the side. And whether that was, what, whatever it was, it was done to gain the approval of the hiring manager or the person that was interviewing you. And so trying to give answers they wanted to hear to, to get the job. And, and, and why, why do we do those things? Well, usually it's because we're filled with doubt. We're filled with doubt. We doubt we, that we're the best candidate for the job. We doubt we have the skills and experience they're looking for. We doubt they will choose us if we don't kind of stretch the truth just a little bit. But I will tell you this. I've done a lot of interviews uh, in my career. And the candidates that stand out to me are the ones, uh, are the ones that, that, that own their mistakes, that they own their shortcomings. They're not afraid to talk about some of the things they did wrong and, more importantly, the things that they, they learned along the way, right? And you can tell they really have a piece about their, their merits, the piece about the flaws that they have, and they trust that they're just going to be judged fairly uh, for who they truly are and what they can offer to the job. And we see that with Paul today, especially in the passage. 
as we read on, we, we see that Paul is, is pleasing God. Uh, and when he's pleasing God, he's filled with peace. He's actually filled with peace. So let's take a look at how Paul responds, again, to these accusations that have just been hurled at him. In verse 10, we say, it reads, And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself. Nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse me. So, so notice right away, Paul doesn't flatter Felix like Tertullus did. He simply states the fact that he's been a judge for the nation for a, a number of years, and he's happy to make his defense. And then notice he starts his argument with a, another fact that, that just 12 days earlier he was worshiping in Jerusalem, right? He starts with a fact and just says, I, I was in Jerusalem worshiping 12 days ago. And you can contrast that with what Tertullus said. Tertullus had zero facts. They were all opinions. They butter, he buttered up the governor, then he threw a bunch of opinions about Paul out. But there were no facts in there. So it was only littered with opinions about Paul. And then he states there's no evidence that he was causing riots in the city or synagogues. There's simply no proof about any of the things, the charges that they brought against him. So, so Paul seems to be totally at peace here in his opening statement, and especially in contrast to Tertullus. So, so where does this peace that Paul has, where does, where does that come from? Uh, as we read on in verse 14, it tells us exactly where it comes from. But I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before other people always. So I love how Paul always takes opportunities to share the gospel with influential people. Do you see that? You see it all throughout his letters. He's, he's sharing the gospel with these very influential people. And, and Christians at the time preferred to be called followers of the way. Followers of the way. You might have picked that up. It wasn't just this belief system. It was a way of life to them. So they preferred to be called followers of the way. So Paul alludes to the way, which his opponents earlier called a sect, right? They called that a sect, a derogatory term. He then says he serves the God of our fathers and believes all that is written in the law and the prophets. So he's making the point here, it's the same God and the same hope that his accusers actually cherish, that they want. Uh, he then makes another reference to the resurrection to come for both the righteous and unrighteous. And we saw this in his argument that, that riled up the Pharisees and, and Sadducees that I talked about earlier. That's what riled them up when he talked to, uh, about the resurrection of the dead. And we see in, um, we saw that in Acts 23 as well, and then he cares deeply about the resurrection of the dead. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. I found this verse, which is wonderful for how much Paul cares about the resurrection. It says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. So clearly, Paul feels the call to share this urgency of the resurrection and the judgment to come. Finally, we see that Paul strives to live a life pleasing to God by keeping a blameless conscience. We pick that up in verse 16. 
This is the source of his peace in the face of accusations and adversity. And you may, you may remember he said something very, very similar in Acts 23.1, where he said this. He said, brothers, I have lived my life with an entirely good conscience before God up to this day. You see, Paul wanted to always be above reproach so he could confidently defend himself and God. So Paul then concludes his argument to Felix, starting in verse 17, it says this. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to have been bringing charges, if they should have anything against me. Or else have these men themselves declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council, other than in regard to this one declaration which I shouted while standing among them. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So, so Paul, Paul basically says the accusations here, they're, they're false. Uh, and even the ones who arrested him originally, the Jews from Asia, they're not even there. They're not even there to, to bring these charges or to stand up while Tertullus is giving this defense or to testify against him. And even to be above reproach, he said, he, he recounts what he did in front of the council when he said, hey, I'm on trial for, for talking about the hope and the resurrection of the dead. But the men earlier didn't even raise that, so that, that was a non-issue. But even to be above reproach, he says that. Um, some of you know the story of Ronnie Smith. He was a, a missionary from, uh, sent to Libya in 2012 from the Austin Stone. And Ronnie went with his wife, Anita, and their infant son. He went to teach chemistry at an international school there while he was looking to bring the hope of the gospel to, to his neighbors. And as Ronnie put it, he, this was his quote. He said, I want to go where no one could find a church if they wanted to, where no one has access to this gospel. Um, the unfortunate part, and a lot of you have heard about this, on, on December 5th, 2013, Ronnie was, was shot and killed while he was out on a, uh, on a run in the morning. Um, <clears throat> his wife and his son had returned to the States a couple weeks earlier to celebrate the holidays with friends and family. Uh, Ronnie was finishing up midterms at the school he was teaching at, and then he was supposed to come home and join them for the holidays, and, and he, never, he never came home. And uh, just, just a, a tragic story, but, but what surprised a lot of people was uh, his wife Anita's response. She went on the CBS morning show, and uh, she would say this. She would say, I hear, I hear people speaking with hate, anger, and blame over Ronnie's death, but that's not what Ronnie would want. Ronnie would want his death to be an opportunity to show one another love and forgiveness because that's what God has shown us. And so that was a wonderful statement that she made. But the, the next statement she would made, made was even more powerful. And, and at this point, she's, she's really fighting tears. Uh, she's, she is crying, and she's trying to hold back tears. Um, but, but, and you can just see her fighting to believe these words that she would say next. And she would go on to say, they would ask her, you know, do you have any messages for the, for the people that killed, killed your husband? And... Uh, again, fighting back tears, she, said, she would address the people that killed Ronnie, and she said this, I love them, and I forgive them, and I have nothing against them. And it's just a powerful, if you get a chance, go watch the interview. It's really powerful. You see, Anita knew that Ronnie lived a life that was pleasing to God, and she, in this very moment, was striving to live a life that was pleasing to God. And that brought her immense peace 
in the middle of this devastating tragedy. You see, pleasing man is filled with doubt, but pleasing God is filled with peace. And you can see that in the words and reactions of Anita Smith. As an application, uh, think about areas in your life where, where you're looking to, to please man. It may, and it may be helpful to start thinking about, at least for me it was, to start thinking about areas in your life where you lack peace, where you lack rest. Is it, is it at work? Is it at school? Um, is it in a certain relationship or with a specific friend group? Is it, is it how you use social media? That was a big area for, for my life. Um, so ask God to, to show you these things and how to please him in these situations so you can have this peace that we're talking about. Um, we all want the peace that comes from living a life pleasing to God. Okay, as we wrap our passage today, we're going to see that pleasing man is filled with fear and pleasing God is filled with boldness. Pleasing man is filled with fear and pleasing God is filled with boldness. So picking up in verse 22, it says this, But Felix having quite accurate knowledge about the way, adjourned them, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from providing for his needs. So we see that Felix understands the way. It says that right there, and we'll talk about why in just a few more verses. And at this point, there's obviously you know, ample evidence Paul hasn't done anything wrong here and that he's innocent. Uh, but what does, what does Felix do in, instead of dismissing this case? Well, he adjourns it. He defers it to a time when Lysias is going to come and visit. And he's afraid to rule in favor of Paul and face the backlash of these Jewish leaders. And we get a glimpse that he feels a little bit of guilt about this, right? Because he puts Paul in custody, but he gives him a lot of freedoms. His friends can come and, and minister to his needs. And so he, you know, certainly, he's certainly not convinced by the lawyer Tertullus that Paul is, is this dangerous plague, this dangerous ringleader that they had argued about earlier, right? He's just putting him in custody, but he's letting him have a lot of freedom. So... You know, the right thing would have been to, to let him go and dismiss the case, but he didn't do that. He put him in custody and let him have some freedoms instead because he didn't want to face the backlash of the Jewish leadership. Um, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, sometimes pleasing man is, is pretty obvious, uh, but sometimes it's, it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit more subtle. So I got permission. Jude's not in here, but I got permission to tell this story about him. Uh, my son Jude had a fencing tournament a couple weeks ago. And right before he's about, we're about to go, he said he didn't want to go, and he's, he started throwing this massive fit, like throw, on, throw yourself on the ground, tears, yelling, screaming, one of the good ones. And uh, so he's going nuts, screaming. And earlier, it's weird, earlier in the year he begged us, right? He begged us to do fencing. He begged us to join this tournament. And, and so I, I just started probing. I said, well, what's changed here? What, 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 what has changed that you don't want to do this? And... He said, oh, fencing is boring and hot. Fencing's boring and hot. As in, like, the garb makes him hot, all right? So I dug a little bit more. He said that fencing was hard, and he wasn't as good as some of his friends at at fencing, and he was afraid of losing. And I explained to him that we we had spent a lot of good money on the fencing gear and that he had committed to fence in this tournament, right? He's committed... And if he didn't go, he, you know, he was in a bracket against other kids. And if he didn't go, those kids weren't going to be able to fence because he didn't, he didn't show up. Um, so we talked about honoring commitments. We talked about honoring commitments. And, that, and if he wanted to quit, he could go up to the school and talk to his coach about quitting. 
Um, and at this point, we're still in full, full meltdown mode. Uh, <laughs> and so I just started to cave. Uh, I had to get Addy to a, a volleyball game. And I told him, I just, all right, you're just come to the volleyball game, but you're not getting anything from the concession stand. Because <laughs> I thought that was the culprit, right? He loves to get stuff from the concession stand. I said, you're not getting anything from the concession stand after that tantrum. And um, so I thought that was a culprit, but uh, luckily Amanda, she was overseas at the time, but she was able to text at this time. She just kept saying, you've got to take him to the tournament. You've got to take him to the tournament. He needs to honor his commitments. And so I'm thinking at this point, like, yeah, it's easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. And I, I feel like I'm literally going to have to drag this kid out of the house with all of his gear, run up to the school, open the door, chuck him inside, and then take off. Um, but I was, I was fearful. I was fearful of what taking him to that tournament would mean. Would mean. I was fearful that he could be super upset with me, that this could break our relationship, me and Jude strain it. I was probably more fearful, though, that, that uh, would these other families see him throwing a massive fit, and what would they think about me as, as a parent, right? And so I wanted to please man, in this case, Jude, um, and take the easier path. But I, I knew that pleasing God, and thank God Amanda was there to help me, but I knew that pleasing God would look like leaning into this hard situation and teaching Jude how to, how to honor his commitments. Again, it's more subtle, but we seek the approval of man in many areas of our life, and oftentimes it's out of fear. As we end our passage, we see this, starting in verse 24. It says, Now some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and responded, Go away for now! And when I have an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he was also hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and talk with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul imprisoned. So Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla, to hear Paul speak about Jesus. Huh, interesting. Drusilla, Felix's wife, is the youngest daughter of King Herod Agrippa, and he's the, uh, she's the sister of King Herod Agrippa II, who we're going to see in, in next week's passage. And she was known for her beauty. She was about 18 or 19 years old at this time. And like I said at the beginning, she was seduced away from her husband by Felix. She was Jewish, so she would have been familiar with the way. This is how, this is how Felix would have been familiar with, with the way, Right. She, she was Jewish, so she knew. And so, so what would Paul share with them? I, just, I know the rest of the story, but just think about that. What would Paul share with them? Keep in mind that Felix held Paul's freedom and his very life in his hands here, right? So Paul could have shared a number of things here that would have maybe got him out of jail, got him you know, better food, who knows, more cushy things, right? Um, but Paul... Uh, knows that pleasing God is filled with boldness, is filled with boldness. So Paul launches right into righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Super light and comfortable topics, right? Super light and comfortable. So I can imagine Paul just conversing with Felix, this governor 
about, he's a very, he's a, uh, as we said before, Felix is a very unrighteous man, right? But he's, Paul launches right into righteousness. The fact that man needs to be made right with a holy God, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but there was this perfect man, Jesus, that walked the earth and fulfilled the law of God perfectly. He died a righteous death for our sins, and by trusting in him, we gain his righteousness. Okay, that's what he talked to Felix about to start with, and then self-control. He launches right into self-control, talking about dying to self and controlling our sinful desires. Paul is talking to Felix here, right? A man who had no self-control or peace and was constantly looking to fill the void with women, with power, with control. And then finally, he launches into the judgment to come, the fact that we all have to give an account to God one day for our actions. But if we have Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we can point to him for our righteousness, not ourselves. So I'm sure this was a super convicting conversation for Felix. And we see his immediate reaction in verse 25. He became frightened and responded, go away for now. Go away for now. He was probably just riddled with shame and conviction. So isn't this ironic? Take, this picture in my head just keeps ringing as I read this, this, uh, this chapter. Uh, isn't it ironic that Paul here is the person in custody that should be fearful for his life, that he's the one who has this perfect peace and boldness. And contrast that with Felix. Felix is the one with all the power and all the authority here in this conversation, yet he's the one that's filled with doubt and fear. And I think that, pic- that mental picture perfectly describes what we're talking about today. <clears throat> As we finish our passage, we see more doubt and fear on the part of Felix. Rather than responding in faith to Paul's discussion, we see that he continued to sin for Paul, Uh, but only in the hopes that Paul would bring him money from the alms that that Paul had collected for the poor in the church in Jerusalem. Again, we see Felix, this immoral man, being corrupt and deceitful and trying to please man and further his own name. And then finally, we see that after two years, Felix, he succeeded as governor, but left Paul in prison as a favor to the Jews. He knew Paul was innocent this entire time, but he's afraid of the backlash of the Jewish leaders And he's probably afraid to tarnish his name or his legacy by releasing Paul. So he takes the easy way out and he leaves him in prison for the next governor to deal with. So so in the end, we see complete opposites here, don't we? We see Felix trying to please man and being filled with this doubt and this fear. And, And while Paul, he's only looking to please God in everything he does. And he's filled with this perfect peace and boldness. All right. I love Alliance Samaragua. I said it. I said, actually, come up here, brother. Come up here. I didn't tell you I was going to do this. Come here. Uh, most of you guys know Alliance. He's become one of my best friends. Um, and I'm in so inspired by the way this man lives his life. Uh, he came to the U.S. as a, as a refugee in 2014 from, from Burundi with, with literally nothing. And he was forced to leave Burundi uh, because of his faith in Jesus Christ and the threat of violence against his life for his faith. Um, He didn't know anyone, didn't know the language, didn't have any way to earn a living, but he trusted God. Um, This man has a faith like few that I know. And he spent years working to establish his life here in the U.S. through through many struggles and hardships. Um, He slept sleeping on couches, missing meals, Um, working through family connections just to survive. And by God's grace, he ended up in Austin, 
um, and got a little bit of stability and, and security. And, and what's the first thing that he wanted to do once he got his feet kind of set on, on solid ground? He wanted to help other refugees and asylum seekers that were coming to America like he did in, in 2014. He wanted to give them hope in, in the middle of these hopeless situations. And more importantly, he wanted to share the love and the hope of Jesus Christ with them. You see, Allianz, he understands that, that, that these people need tangible goods. Um, they, they need essentials to live, but Christ is the lasting hope that these people need in their lives. And Allianz uh, lives a life that is pleasing to God. Um, I can say that with confidence. And it's evident from the way that he talks and, and acts. It's, it's evident from the joy that he has, the joy that he brings to everyone he meets, the way that he selflessly serves other people. Um, and by doing this, he's filled with peace and boldness for everyone he comes to know. And I'm eternally grateful our paths have, have crossed and that we get to do life with Allianz. Um, so thank you for living a life that is pleasing to God. It's a truly an inspiration to know you. I love you, brother. Thank you so much. Love thank you. you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, so friends, uh, are there areas in your life where you have fear, where you have um, indecision, where you are, have avoidance because you're looking to please man instead of God. Again, some may be obvious, like maybe not wanting to share the gospel with a friend because you don't want to disrupt or ruin that relationship. Sometimes it looks very subtle, like, like the example I gave with, with Jude. Um, do you have fear in your relationships with your kids, with friends, um, with significant other, a boss, a coworker, a neighbor? Think about those areas of your life, and it may also be helpful to think about a time when you felt bold, um, were you confidently walking in the will of God when you felt bold? My guess is you probably were. Um, because when we're living a life that is pleasing to God, we can be filled with peace and boldness. And, and just to close, I keep coming back to this scene where Paul is boldly talking to Felix about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Basically laying out the gospel for this man. And the irony is, is that Paul should be the one that's scared for his life. And yet Felix is the one that leaves that conversation scared for his life, scared and afraid. And how that connects back to Paul's prior statement that he always does his best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and man always. You see, Paul was living a life that was pleasing to God, and in doing so he was filled with peace and boldness to share the gospel in any and all situations that he found himself in. So friends, my prayer is that we could all strive to utter those words as well, that we do our best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and man always, and that would free us from doubt and fear and give us peace and boldness to live lives that are honoring and pleasing to God. All right, next week we're going to jump back into chapter 25. Ben's going to unpack Paul's defense before King Agrippa, which should be fun. All right, let's pray.